When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Sing us a song, Steve. All right, let's see. How to sell an air conditioner. That's our lesson for today. Mrs. Housewife's coming to the door. Let's hear what you're gonna say. How to do nice day, we're having them. No, it's hot. What you gotta sell? By chance, it's air conditioning. So far, he's doing pretty well. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I saw a documentary last year called Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's so beguiling, so funny, and charming that I had to meet its subject, Steve Young. Young is the world's foremost collector of recordings of industrial musicals. Would you recommend one model that'll do what it ought to do? Steve Young may not be a household name, but his work was certainly in my household. On The David Letterman Show, Young was the brains behind such bits as Todd the Intern and Strong Guy, Fat Guy Genius. It was at Letterman that he discovered the joys of the industrial. Describe for people what was an industrial. An industrial show or industrial musical was a live musical theater production that in many ways resembled a full-fledged Broadway show, privately staged for an audience of salesmen or executives within a corporation. Industry people. Yes. uh, It might be a show written for Coca-Cola bottlers, and the entire audience is Coca-Cola bottlers. But then once you're in there, oh my God, it's a dazzling, enormous production with singing and dancing and props and often a full book and storyline and characters about the business that you were in. I'm a bottler, but believe me, it's no bed of roses what with all the different size packages on the market today, they keep me on the hot seat. It's a rough seat. It's a hot seat. Here we sit and daily tangle with problems really rough to wrangle with, yet we can't see any other way. 
With our management decisions Making day-to-day -day revisions It's here you'll find us each and every day We call it a hot seat It's a dazzling, enormous production with all the singing and dancing and props and often a full book and storyline and characters about the business that you were in and how your daily struggles were noble. And and the purpose of it was what? It was usually to introduce new products and get you excited about them and get you in the mood of that engine, that that's going to be a great seller. And these lyrics about here's the new suspension and here's the Look marketing. Look at the fenders on that baby. Yeah, fenders do turn up a lot, but it's also about here's the marketing plans and we're going to have great advertising. Yeah. And the better versions of these things were just high-octane, great songs and great production value. I mean, I'm listening to it decades later. I have no skin in this game. I'm not going to try to sell a tractor. I don't care how good the new engine is, really. But I, I was so drawn to it because this seems so improbable. How could this have ever existed? How could it have been recorded? And how could I have found it? And then we're, we're down this rabbit hole of improbability on top of improbability. Describe that. What happened? So when I first started finding these souvenir record albums, when I was working on Dave's show, collecting material to put on the Dave's record collection segments, just anything that's... That was your thing. That, I got assigned that early on and turned out to be a good match for me. I would go to record stores and try to find something that seemed ridiculous that we could make a joke about. But I found these souvenirs from corporate events... And by the time I had like six or seven of them, I thought, is this actually a genre? How can this possibly be? It's weird enough that there's one or two of them, but I keep finding them. Not every time, but I keep finding them. And then it's years later now, and we've uncovered this enormous stealth part of American history and culture that uh, really was in danger of just getting away from us entirely because it was never something that the public would. Is that what you, did you feel some aspect of that? Is there a custodial aspect, a stewardship you feel? Oh, absolutely. Not that uh, the world will rise or fall on whether we know much about industrial shows or not, but then you start meeting the people who wrote them and performed in them, and they had long since resigned themselves to being anonymous in this regard, yeah. and no one will ever know what this stuff it's was. It's embedded in amber, that whole world. And just the feeling that I could bring them out of that complete uh, darkness and say, someone cares about what you did and it was really good and it's worth hearing even outside of its original context because you do such great work that it holds up. Even It shouldn't hold up because it's about diesel engines, but still, it I, I find it compelling. So I was thrilling for me that I was able to find so many people from this world who expected never to hear from anyone about this. And then I was the guy calling and saying, I'm a big fan of your uh, 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 fluorescent light fixture show. And they would say, how did you know about that? No one should know about that. Oh, my God. There was a point at which I realized I'm not interested in this for the show anymore. I'm interested in this for me. And at one point, I put together a list of all the albums I had bought with the show's money. And I noted down what the titles were and how much I had paid for them. And I asked the show, 
I would like to own these myself. Can I buy them from the show? And they were very kind, and they just said, oh, you can keep them. But I felt like that was a turning point at which I realized this was this was my own project now. What year did all this kind of commence for you? There was a little bit pre-internet when it was just like uh, cold calling record stores, just like, uh, all right, here's one in Boston. I managed what to find What was the one. source to find those? I... I some magazine? Somehow I had a CD-ROM that had like millions of phone numbers of businesses or something. I don't even remember how I got started, but I would just cold call record stores. And you don't sleep at night, do you? You're up all night with this stuff, aren't you? I haven't slept in years. <laughs> just uh, cold calling places and trying painfully to explain what I was looking for, which was always a very high hill to climb because it's just so off the radar of what people have ever heard of. Once in a great while, I would get lucky, but when eBay started, I got right. on eBay around 97, and it wasn't well categorized at first. It was right. just like records. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> Every kind of record from classical music to the Beatles to everything else was all just in one category, and you'd scroll through thousands of listings. And again, once in a while, the needle in a haystack would work. Oh, my God, the Edsel show. But uh, eBay became a huge source, but I also just worked connections with record dealers that I would meet and say, if you find anything like this, give me a call. Now, because I want to mention what I've experienced has taken its place and my participation in those. Okay. When I was in the business in the beginning, I come into New York and I'm doing voiceovers and things and starting out in 1980. And it was the end of that era. And I remember driving uh, around the country you see a hotel, you know, welcome Philco dealers, you know, mm -hmm. with a big sign on the marquee there. But what's replaced that is this thing I do now, which is they, they've replaced the show with just performances, like musicians come and play. They bring me in to do the tired kind of celebrity Q&A. Uh -huh. I still do a few of these a year, uh, but this is what's replaced that organized production. Yeah, I have a DVD, I think, of uh, like... 88 or 89, an Anheuser-Busch convention show, and they got Frank Sinatra, they got Liza Minnelli, they got Sammy Davis Jr., and I was watching this thing saying, please start singing about beer distribution, <laughs> and they never did. They just were doing their... Barley and hops, uh, they're the tops. <laughs> See, you could do well in this business. I think you right. have a flair for it, but everybody who was doing these shows during what I would call the golden age uh, has remarked on... Uh, it was excellent money by the standards of uh, uh, struggling to mid-range singer, actor, dancer. You got treated beautifully oftentimes, flown around, put up in excellent hotels, and you worked with terrific people. They hired A-list directors and choreographers and big orchestras. Show directors. Yeah, yeah, these people would shuttle back and forth between Broadway and a lot of performers doing this as an alternative to uh, waiting tables or driving a cab. It was not what you thought you would be doing necessarily when you decided you wanted to go into show business, but it was an excellent training ground because you had to be really good at a, a big set of skills and keep getting better. Well, knowing that it's private, knowing that there's a little likelihood this thing is going to see the light of day, I wonder if there are people who, just to grab the money, the short-end money, were there some performers you noticed that became industrial whores who showed up again and again? Well, there were people that once— I'm not talking about lower lights, but right. like names. Yeah, there were people who uh, 
became reliable mid-range people. <laughs> and then once in a while, they would vault out of that. Like uh, Hal Linden was doing a lot of this stuff in the right. 60s. He's on Broadway. He wins a Tony. Then he's, then he's Barney Miller. He has graduated from industrials. But at some point, Ford Motor Company decided, you know what? We want Hal Linden to be the MC for our big uh, introduction show in the early 80s. So he is lured back. And I don't know whether it was because he had a sort of residual fondness for, oh, I remember yeah. the old days. But uh, And Cheetah Rivera, when she was starting out, she was doing shows as just a sort of background dancer or featured player. And then she got really famous. And then sometimes companies would say, let's let's see if we can dangle enough money in front of a big star to have them come in and be our famous person in our industrial show. So obviously collecting anything is uh, challenging in New York. Where does Steve keep all this material in his New York home? And I was to go out and get a locker somewhere? Well, luckily for me, uh, living in a modestly sized apartment, I through accident or subconscious uh, impulse, decided to collect one of the most compact forms of uh, things that you can collect. I have my collection of 200-something records and also now a stack of films, and and it just fits in a couple of cabinets. I I decided not to collect antique gas pumps, which I think would have been a problem. (laughs) Yeah, World War II helicopter blades. those are uh, those are heating up in the marketplace. I can yeah. uh, put you in touch with somebody if you want to come. Well, it's them. funny the collecting thing. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm in a market. I'm in a flea market in 1994 in Paris, and I stumble around this market there, and I see a Jaeger Le Coultre, or as they say, Jaeger Le Coultre, um, folding travel alarm clock. Beautiful. With the Hermes case, which is the which is the this is the this is the uh, the great uh, quest is the uh, in the Le Coultre, uh, uh vein. You want the Hermes Le Coultre. and I find this thing which is the size of this phone, smaller folding, travel longer, beautiful. And I go, oh my god, this thing is. I mean, I don't know what it was. And, you know, you talk about I'm a clock nut. I collect clocks, so I'm like, and, and I collect weird, like little winding clocks and travel alarm clocks, not big, you know, fancy, expensive oh, clocks. Yeah. I should send you a tape of the West Clocks show. Oh, yeah, you should. And uh, um, and I start. That was the beginning. I picked up that clock. Clocks are, you know, I, I've got clocks. My wife Ilaria, she literally would look at me like, you know, like what's wrong with me? Like what's what's what what is the manifestation of this mental illness I have with all the clocks everywhere? And I still collect them. I just bought a small little batch of them the other day, but there you go. There are a million little categories like that with passionate experts, and they lead seemingly normal lives, and then they have this little uh, uh, side area of their life. Uh, my brother, my father and mother, everybody in my family has gotten very deeply into different collecting. What's the weirdest collection you've come across? You hear about weird little things like... Uh, uh, miniature ceramic thimbles. uh, uh, But I can't think that any of this is weird because if if what I think is interesting is has all the depths that I've found to it, there may well be that for for everything that seems weird to me. Whenever someone's hunting for something, whenever they're involved in a process, a hobby, a vocation, where there's hunting involved, as I believe you're thing that's a component of it they're really hunting for something else 
What are you hunting for? Well, I've read, and it does seem true to me, that collectors are in some symbolic way trying to impose order on a, a chaotic universe, even if it's just, all right, there- I can't fix most of it, obviously, but if I take this tiny little corner of human endeavor and say, I'm going to get this part straightened away, then I can feel like I can relax because not everything is chaos. If we can understand and categorize and uh, absorb what has been done in some tiny sliver, then that will symbolically help me feel like life is not pure chaos. How does the film happen? Bathtubs over Broadway? Bathtubs over Broadway. (laughs) When I heard the title, I was like, what the... For the life of me, I couldn't even figure it out. Normally, I could maybe get it. Uh What the hell is that? Well, I think that's good because it made you curious. No, the film's wonderful. The film's fantastic. The title's great. Bathtubs over Broadway. It says bathtubs over Broadway, then you show up. People are like, wait a minute. And then by the end, you're convinced, hopefully, that... Well, we're going to talk about the end. We're going to get to that. The end is mesmerizing. Uh (laughs) The end is like, you are the Tony Randall of industrials. I mean, you are incredible. So so who approaches who? Who decides this is a film? Did you decide to write it as Uh, a film? No, well, I'm I'm not uh, the writer or director or producer or anything. I'm, I'm the guy who you follow. Now we're heading up to Buffalo Grove to track down the elusive Sid Siegel. I had tried to find Sid many times over the years. I thought I had missed my chance. Wrote the immortal lines. My bathroom is a private kind of place. They say, don't meet your heroes. Steve? Sid? I had written a book a few years ago with a friend of mine on this topic, and uh, we decided, all right, we think this is the time and we have a, a great publisher who's going to do a great job with this. And we wrote this book called Everything's Coming Up Profits, <laughs> which is actually the title of a, a floor tile company's show. Uh, and it t- kind of tells you the whole story there. It's a Broadway reference, but it's been twisted for some uh, internal corporate uh, infotainment purposes. So we put out this book. It was late 2013. Uh, it was uh, well-received. It's a beautiful book. We're, we're thrilled with it. A couple people started approaching me to say, this seems like it could be a, a good area for a documentary film. And uh, by this point, uh, I had been friends with Deva, the director. Deva Wizenant is the director. That's right. So I asked Deva, can you uh, tell me if these people who are approaching me seem uh, like they'd be a good match for this? Because you're now in the documentary world and I don't know anything about it. And she said, well, if there's going to be a documentary film, I, w- I would be interested in in working on it. And I said, oh, my goodness, that would be uh, better than I could have hoped for. I didn't even think that would be possible. But that's that's what we ended up doing. How long did it take to make the movie? It's uh, just about four years. Which is not that extreme, I guess, in the world of indie Okay, if you say so. That's a lot of time for a filmmaker to spend on a film, you know. But uh, it took a long time to get all the pieces in place and find all the people that we needed to talk to. Do you see any parallel between yourself as an individual and industrial musicals themselves? Yeah. The majority of these shows were never recorded. I think even though I have this big stack of them now, it's... 
I would guess, probably 1% of what was ever done. Most of it just disappeared into the ether and was gone forever. Uh, working on The Letterman Show, most of what was written never sees the light of day. So you have to keep pushing out new material and hoping inspiration strikes and doing your best. But most of it you have resigned yourself to accepting is not really going to ever make a mark anywhere. And the people who were doing these industrials really also had to resign themselves to this may be an astonishingly tuneful, catchy show, and the only people who are ever going to hear it are these 300 people here at 8 in the morning, and then it's going to be gone forever. So I felt empathy for these creators who had to keep working on stuff that they knew was going to be forgotten. Wow, that's cool. I'm told... Did what? you say we're going to do some songs? Oh, we have a couple of clips that I uh, edited off of actual oh, So I made the assumption that albums. the keyboard out there was someone's going to... I thought you were going to get there and you were going to oh, play. Oh, no, we don't want that. No. <laughs> the first clip we'll have is from a show called Diesel Dazzle, Detroit Diesel Engine Division of General Motors, 1966. A uh, beautifully produced show. Uh, the music is by a gentleman who I am friends with and we have collaborated together on music. He's 91 now, but this is... Right in the What's heart of uh, Hank Beebe. Hank Beebe. Where's in, Hank? He's in Portland, Maine. And uh, I've become very uh, close to him. He's a great friend and mentor and uh, just one of the thousands of thrilling aspects of this for me is that I've found people I've really developed a, a deep connection with. This is a song called One Man Operation, and it's uh, the lament of a woman whose husband is overworked at his diesel engine operation. He did it all alone Keep books and tend the phone Eighteen hours every twenty-four But now the one man in my life Is no one-man operation Now, there's a lushness to that. This feels like A-list people, and it actually is a very affecting song. Finally, things turn around. He hires a new mechanic. He hires a parts and service man. <laughs> Those things shouldn't be in song lyrics, and yet there they are, and it actually... Pulling on our heartstrings. Yes. I'm not a diesel engine salesman, but I feel that lump in my throat about it. Coming up, Steve Young tells his own story from blue-collar New England to Harvard to the top of the comedy writing heap. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. 
make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. A working-class kid from the outskirts of Boston, Steve Young didn't believe at first he could make a living from writing jokes. But he got his big break almost right out of Harvard with a job on The David Letterman Show. You started working with Dave, and you showed up there when you were 24? Yes, it was uh, spring of 1990. And you were at the Lampoon? I had been on the Harvard Lampoon. That was a few years earlier. Kicked around. Uh, I was a bartender for a while. Conan was the editor-in-chief of the Lampoon when you showed up there. That's right. Conan Is- was the president of the Harvard Lampoon, and that was uh, a really uh, influential thing for me to encounter because I felt like for the first time I met somebody who was at a level I had never personally witnessed before, just like he walks in a room and, oh, my God, I don't know how or why, but everything is instantly hilarious. Right, he was funny. Oh, yes. Yeah. What was the pipeline between the Lampoon and comedy writing, particularly in New York? You know, SNL, Lauren's a big, he minds that quarry, if you will, for uh, writers, Conan and, uh, uh, and beyond into Hollywood. What is it about the Lampoon you think that they've got that pipeline into show business? Well, part of it is just once you're there, you become aware that there have been people who've gone before you. And for the first time, maybe in your life, you think, oh, this is something people do for a living. Because there are hilarious, brilliant, funny people all over the place who maybe never have that revelation of, oh, people do this for a living. So it was uh, very fortunate that I got that uh, sense early on that people go to Letterman and SNL and they are comedy writers and it can be your career. What did you study at Harvard? I was an English major and right. I don't really know why now. I think I, I seem to have turned into more of an amateur historian. Uh, and, and you grew up 
a ways outside oh, yeah. Boston. Oh, sorry. What town? Uh, Pepperell, Massachusetts. Pepperell. Yes. Uh, your dad worked at Logan? Oh, my gosh. You have done your work. Yes. Uh, aircraft mechanic for U.S. Air. Or it was Allegheny at first. But, yeah, right, uh, right, right, right. He, he commuted in an hour to Logan Airport. But we were out sort of the borderline of suburbia verging into the countryside. And was it you or somebody else I was reading about where you said you, you didn't quite even know where Harvard was? That is true. I mean, it was a different era in the early 80s. I I thought I was going to, okay, I'm going to apply to some colleges. And I had the vague notion that Harvard was probably in New York City because that seemed to be where important, th- people yeah, important things are there. I bet Harvard is there. And I uh, get the application. It says Cambridge, Massachusetts. I, Holy crap, this is in my own state. Right. Yeah, you don't so it wasn't get that. a goal. It wasn't like a burning goal. I mean, if you did well enough to get into Harvard, but you weren't scheming about academia and advancement. No, it was just such a, a, a golden, naive era when people weren't necessarily groomed from birth for things like that. To work every angle. Not in Pepperell. Not, I mean, there were smart people coming out of Pepperell and doing great things, but no one had gone to an Ivy League college for a dozen years or something. Wow. So as a child, what was entertainment for you? What was comedy for you? TV? You're a few years younger than I. You're born '65. Yeah. Yeah. So you, what was, what were you viewing? What were your viewing habits? Uh, they were very eclectic. Uh, Gilligan's Island reruns, and oh, it's the late '70s, and look, it's uh, it's Dallas, and it's yeah, uh, Love Boat, and uh, Heart to Heart, and things right, like right, that. Right. I missed enormous chunks of uh, pop culture that everyone assumes I must know. Like until I was uh, starting to teach a course at NYU about TV history, I'd never seen Mary Tyler Moore. I had never seen Dick Van Dyke. I was not uh, like a, a comedy nerd. You weren't. No. The same thing is true for me. Like, I, I remember I turned off TV when I went to college. I went to college in 76, and prior to that, it was really, it was everything dopey and silly and stupid. It was Mr. Ed and uh, F Troop and uh, the Adams Family yeah. and all those shows. The Beverly Hillbillies, which I adored at age five. Yeah, and Beverly Hillbillies. I, it, imprinted on me a little bit. I still find it maybe a little more amusing than I should just because I had this uh, bedrock exposure to it at an early age. But I was, uh, even in college, no, I I think we had a small black and white television, but this uh, image of the 80s and everybody in college watching Letterman, I think there were people that were doing that, but I wasn't watching the Letterman show. Now, when they hire you, you said you knocked around for a couple of years from when you graduated to when you showed up in New York to do the show? Yeah. You You weren't writing? I had a couple writing jobs. I worked on not necessarily the news out in L.A. for about six weeks. That was actually my first You had it out there. Job. I stayed on a friend's sofa. He was uh, <laughs> very kind. And How did they find you? I Your did friends? have an agent at that point who, I guess, got my packet on someone's desk. And they said, ah, yeah, sure, we'll give him a try. And that was great. And I don't think I wanted to live in L.A., so it was probably for the best that after six weeks they said, yeah, we're having budget problems. I'm afraid uh, last hired, first fired, you got to go. Why didn't you want to live out there? I have always felt I'm just more of an East Coast person. I like to go visit L.A., but... Uh, uh, you know, as my friend said, you know, New York, millionaires and whores on the same taxi seats all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, just, it's so uh, democratic. Yeah, I like the feeling of walking down Lexington Avenue or Broadway or whatever and... 
it doesn't feel like we're all probably scrambling around in the same business. There's just a thousand different occupations swirling all around you in the city, and you don't have to feel like, oh, the entertainment business is, is what I need to think about all the time. Once you do something that has any resonance in the business and you're considered any kind of a star or whatever pedigree, you're always a star out there. So, mm-hmm. like, I'd be at a table in a restaurant, and I'd be with a friend of mine, and they go, oh, wait, there's my friend Jeff. Jeff! Jeff was in that miniseries, Leave It All on the Field. Yeah. He was very good in that. He was so good. Jeff, and it's like if you did one job, you know, you were were, were in the firmament forever out there. That's right. That's your anchor now. You're you're in the club. (laughs) But uh, I did a Simpsons episode in the mid-90s, and that was fun. I was out there for a few days, and... And the Simpsons people said, hey, if you want to move out here, we'd love to have you on the staff. And it was thought-provoking, but I just thought, I don't really think I'm fundamentally wanting to go to L.A. and do that. Were you though, married at the time? Yes. Yeah, what it. was your wife thinking? Um, she had, and, and I had moved down from Boston, which was a smaller upheaval than going to another world like Los Angeles would have been. But uh, we both have family in the Northeast and... By 96, we we had our first child, and it felt like the Letterman Show is going to be the good place to stay for, for a long time. So how do they find you? Oh, that was uh, early 1990, uh, after one of their anniversary shows, like within the space of three weeks, six writers announced that they were leaving. The show, uh, anniversary show, I think had been in L.A., and all the writers had gone out and secretly started to have meetings out there. Yeah, they they were the opposite of you. Yeah, and they were, well, they wanted wanted to work on The Simpsons. They had been in in, uh, Letterman during the glory years, and they were ready to do something else. So there were suddenly a bunch of slots opening up, and the comedy grapevine around New York was all full of buzz about, oh, now's the time to send in your stuff to The Letterman Show. And I had a few good samples by this point, and I sent some stuff in, and... And I got a call one day from Steve O'Donnell, who was the head writer. I said, oh, well, we'd like you to uh, come up and visit, and uh, I'd like to chat with you, and maybe we'll uh, have a little talk with Dave. It, it was not a done deal, but it felt like, oh, my goodness, I've uh, I've crossed some sort of uh, milestone here. And I went up and chatted with a few people on the staff, and Mr. Letterman and I chatted amiably for a couple minutes. And then the next day I got the call, oh, well, we'd love to have you come join us if you're interested. I accepted. Yeah. Now, when you tell that story, three things come to mind. One is, do they get it wrong? Is there a turnover there? Or are they pretty good at discerning? You get fired for what? Do your, your bits aren't getting on the air? It It's a, a very strange, subjective thing. There were so many people at that show who were there for a very long time. I think Dave liked the sense of a, a solid core group that all knew what they were doing and were comfortable with each other. And so I think the the hope is that we build up this long-term team of people who believe in the show. And, the, and the, fit. Yeah. And there are wonderfully talented comedy geniuses who have been tried out at the Letterman show, didn't work out there, weren't picked up after 26 weeks or whatever, and went on to huge success on other ventures. So it's not a barometer of whether you're funny or not. It's just such a weird, narrow arcane window of what you need to hit. In and order describe to, that, if you can. We have the people already who can do what we do. We need somebody who can enlarge right. the, 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 what the show does a little bit. Grow the company. Yeah, and that, that, that's a very hard thing, to be able to be pretty good at what the show already did, but also have a little extra 
flair of something the show had not seen before that Dave would respond to and want to do. You started there what year? 1990. And you were there for how many years? 25. And then the uh, uh, to the end? Yes, the right. very last day. And Letterman was on uh, NBC and moved to, he moved to CBS what year? 93. So you were with him during the transition? Yeah. Okay, so this is perfect. So, uh, you know, Letterman, uh, who I adore and I love, we ran around the city with cameras and did these stand-ups and we're in front of Tad Stakes and we're... Alec Baldwin is riding a snowmobile on the roof of the building. That's right. I remember that. That was my, that was my go. legendary. One of those great nights where just some spontaneous thing takes off and it's beautiful. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so when I meet you in the film, you know, you, you, you're of a type. And all the most like ninja, eighth degree black belt comedy writers that I've met either have or create – the, they, they put on the demeanor that you have, which is you can't guess they're either an actuary at an insurance company or they're like one of the funniest people you've ever met. They keep the soda in the can, you know what I mean? So when I meet you, the, am, I, am I making sense? It's, it's got to so. go on the page. Yeah, I don't think I come across as a uh, stereotypical. An actuary at an insurance company? Well, I dabble in that on the side <laughs> and it, it's more fun than you might think. But I do think that, okay, yeah, I have this uh, very subdued, deadpan flavor. And then for people who are just meeting me, I may uncork something completely bizarre. And they, because it is not playing as stereotypical comedy in the delivery and my, I'm not making wacky faces and gestures yeah. and all that. It, it takes a minute for people to readjust yeah. to, what am I hearing? Is this person actually uh, having a stroke or did he mean that or... <laughs> It's like Newhart. There's a very Newhart-esque. Did you love Newhart? Because I wasn't a comedy nerd. I knew who he was, but I don't think I ever watched any of those shows. No comedy albums for you when you were young? No. No Cheech and Chong? No, uh, I listened to Dr. Demento for a, a while late at night, but I don't think I ever bought any comedy albums or anything like that. Letterman. So he changes over time. Did you see that? In the 2000s, he had been doing it for so long he decided, either consciously or not, I just want to not worry as much every day about how the logistics of this are going to work. And we all found ways to make it work like that for him. Just bring him material. He'll look at it. He'll pick it. He doesn't have to read scripts in the morning. We'll just give him various completed pieces late in but the you afternoon. you notice a shift. He seemed to be having uh, more fun the last few years again. Yeah. And you realize he was enough. He would make it one of those magical nights that you couldn't have planned, but it was brilliant, spontaneous Regardless something. of the guest, he had everything in his pocket. It was good to go. Now, what's the, the, the other clip you have? This is from the 1977 Massey Ferguson Tractor and Equipment Show, which was called World of Winners. Uh, this is a, a rousing, country-tinged uh, anthem of uh, excitement about the Massey Ferguson company and what it's like to work for them. This is called uh, We're Massey Ferguson. Hit it. When he's working a field with a record yield, he wants to pick it clean. And when harvest comes, he's got to have a dependable machine. Who are we? Yes, we're Massey. We're number one. Proud and say it loud. We're Massey Ferguson. Yeah. 
for five minutes, I will I will feel the thrill of being on the Massey Ferguson team, which is headed for glory. I just have this image of you and your do- you have two daughters mm-hmm. in your home, and your daughters are like, you know, Dad, can we talk to you about something? And you're in there listening to, uh, you know, some jaunty song like that. And like, go, oh God, Dad, stop. Turn that record off, Dad. Well, they didn't necessarily fully understand what I was doing for a long time. And uh, when the book came out a few years ago and I was on the Letterman show as a guest and we were playing some clips and uh, Dave held up the bathrooms are coming record and started, uh, we started playing the clip of this beautiful anthem, My Bathroom, and my younger daughter's eyes widened because all her life, she had heard that song around the house and I'm just singing it or my wife is humming it or whatever. And and she said, oh my God, this song that I've heard around our family all my life, that's from one of your weird records? <laughs> the two enormous pieces suddenly clicked in together for her that had not connected before. Before you go and before you return my jacket, could we hear just a little of the bathrooms are coming? Just a little. Thought you'd never ask. All right, let's just take another listen. Really brings back memories, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, the young, the gifted, Steve Young. So the movie ends, and I must say that you are a dreadful musical comedy performer in terms of the quality of your voice. We share that. We share that trait. And yet, it doesn't matter. You show up on camera, and we've fallen in love with you by now. This is the genius of this thing. You have to earn that performance. You can't just have anybody do that. And you do it because we've fallen in love with you in the film. And I haven't been so smitten by a guy in a musical number since I saw Bobby Morse do Brotherhood of Man in the original How to Succeed. You're just there and you're so winning. You just take over. Whose idea was that? Well, uh, as the movie came together over the last, uh, I guess, couple of years, it felt like... I think the director and her co-writer and other producers felt like we have spent all this time establishing that musical theater has a certain unique power. Even if you're not a Broadway musical fan, we believe we have now made a case for this stuff being able to really reach people. Find that path others missed. Life is grander. doing jazz hands when someone says Dow Jones or maybe you start dancing when you hear it seemed like the only card left to play was say all right we have to step out on that ledge and do it ourselves now. I loved it. It was like, it's like you see a movie and the guy and the girl, it's, they're getting closer. They get, and by the end of the movie, they have to kiss. Mm-hmm. This is the guy and the girl kiss at the end of the movie moment for this movie. I don't want you to do any more of that, no. by the way. Okay. No more singing from you, quite frankly. Well, the finale was movie magic of a, a magnitude that I never had dreamed of being involved with. It was thrilling on every level. The song, which I co-wrote with my dear friend Hank Beebe, 91 years old, he pulls this this melody out of his subconscious somewhere, and the first time he played it for me over the phone, I realized... 
I think we have a hit. This movie, Bathtubs Over Broadway, is... It's a fantastic movie because it's it's it, like any good movie. It's a well made movie. It's well cut. It's uh, it's paced up. It's got all the good things you know cinematically you want in a doc. And uh, but the topic is just so crazy, and the people involved it's so eclectic. And you are such a wonderful protagonist in the film. You're the perfect protagonist. You guys did an amazing job. You did a great job. Well, it was a dream of a lifetime to get to be involved with something like this and. Deva and her team took it places I could not myself have even dreamed of. Thanks for doing this with me. It was my extreme pleasure. Thank you. Letterman writer, collector, and savior of the industrial musical Steve Young. The movie about his project is called Bathtubs Over Broadway. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing... Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.